0: What is up, guys? Welcome to the Trent Collar's Podcast, Episode 2. My guest today is great and powerful Scott Horton, He's director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author, political commentator, foreign policy expert, in my own opinion. Uh, we had a riveting conversation. I think that if you're curious about what's going on with Ukraine and the Russia right now, as well as some backstory on the war on terror over the last 20 years and some other wars prior to that, so uh, coming after World War II, might find some interesting information so without further ado let's get into it we'll go ahead and start then um if you just want to give a quick little background i'm sure anyone watching this is probably going to be fans of you already but in the case that it's the 10 people you know that are here for me uh if you just want to let people know who you are
1: sure i'm the director of the libertarian institute at libertarianinstitute.org and I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com and I wrote these books. You can see behind me. If you're watching the video version of this, "Fool's uh, Errand," "Time to End the War in Afghanistan," and "Enough Already: Time to End the War on Terrorism." And essentially, I'm a Ron Paul guy, a libertarian, anti-war guy. Yes, sir. Oh, and sir. I do a show. I've done 5,600 something interviews since 2003, and all of that is at scotthorton.org.
0: Yes, sir. Excellent. Uh, my name is Trent Collars. I'm from Texas. I'm actually from Lumberton, Texas. Uh, And I just got out of the military. Uh, If you don't mind, I kind of touched on it a little bit in my first episode that I just did. Uh, I'd like to kind of give a a background for my experience in the military and what led me to this point. Uh, So if they'll just give me like 10 minutes or so, I might jump off on a few tangents, but I'm just going to try to knock this out real quick.
1: Oh, yeah. That sounds great, man.
0: Hell, yeah. So I joined the military, started high school, 17, uh, went to Bud's which is the pipeline for Navy SEALs. Ended up quitting. Um, One of the best things that happened to me because it allowed me to really develop my mentality and become a man and understand what it took to put yourself in hard situations and come out successful. So after I fell out, I went to the fleet, spent some time as a mass communication specialist uh, doing public affairs work for the Navy. Knew that's not what I wanted to do. Ended up meeting some explosive ordnance disposal technicians who just got back from Afghanistan. I was like, man, these dudes are super cool. Everyone was a bro. They were super nice to me whenever I was uh, asking them questions about coming in their community and stuff. So that's where I ended up going, made it through the pipeline, um, got pinned, went to Guam. First year or so in Guam was great, uh, but I started noticing things here and there like political correctness and wokeness, um, these really left ideologies that were seeping their way into the military especially, but even in the special operations communities where You know the idea is to be surrounded by a group of people who are warriors and it's not about people's feelings you know you're there to do your job and you're there to be super physically fit super mentally tough um so that was kind of off-putting um but really when covid happened is when i started questioning a lot of things um so on guam whenever you arrived or left you had to do a mandatory two-week period of quarantine and this was the Navy's policy as well as Guam's policy and it was 14 days but usually we, you would end up doing like 17 days um because they would test you on the 14th day and it would take two or three days for the results to come back and if you came back positive you were stuck in there for another two weeks which really was like another 17 days um so the first time this happened I was like man this is super fucked up like what's going on here you know uh so I looked up what the definition of torture in regards to isolation is by the UN uh, ended up coming across a UN document called the standard minimum rules for the treatment of prisoners uh, also referred to as the Mandela rules and in it, it states 15 consecutive days or longer is considered torture for prisoners. So basically I was sitting there going, so we're service members and civilians of the United States, and we're being subjected to what would be considered torture for prisoners, for people who, committed crimes, you know, that would put them in a situation where they deserve to be locked up aside from nonviolent drug offenders, stuff like that, you know, like actual hardened criminals, you know, who deserve to be put away. Um, So it kind of broke down my mentality and let me see through the facade really for like the first time as an adult. Um, And I was kind of at a synchronistic moment in my life where I was going through these periods of I don't want to say awakening or alignment, but just evolution politically, philosophically, spiritually, Um, and not to get too metaphysical or anything, but like, I believe in a divine flow of energy throughout the universe. Um, And the more that I looked into these things and started breaking down my preconceived ideologies and what I was bred to believe, and what i was taught in basically you know the 40 hour week state propaganda camp that is the public school system i started realizing how utterly corrupt the world was and how our government was basically using us as stormtroopers to enforce imperialism around the world and it really blew my mind and it like cracked my psyche you know and so i started speaking out against it um I had done a few times in isolation or whatever, and I was really questioning all these things. And I started getting really depressed because I was questioning my entire reality, you know? So I brought my uh, issues up to my commanders. They basically told me to just take a little bit of time. um, And I wasn't really happy with that. And then I got back on island again, and I did two weeks of quarantine, got tested, came back positive, was completely asymptomatic, and basically asked them to get another test. Cause like, Hey, these tests are faulty there. It's very clearly documented that they give off false readings. Could I just get tested again? So I'm not locked up in my house for another two weeks. They said, absolutely not suck it up. So they locked me in my house for uh, about five and a half weeks by the end of it under straight house arrest. And this was at a time when Guam was on hard lockdown to the point where they were giving tickets to people for being on the sidewalks. All beaches shut down and they had the National Guard deployed, setting up checkpoints in the roads where you needed paperwork to get through these checkpoints. And the only reason you were supposed to be outside of your house was to get groceries, to get gas and to work. And this was for months. It's not like this was the initial two weeks. This was going on for months and months. Um, and just the utter heavy handedness of the state, especially the government of Guam. To the point where like we'd be on the beach having a good time it's a tropical island you know it's beautiful the water's beautiful and you'd have the police and the Department of Health coming down to the beach and breaking people up asking you where you live asking you for your information. Um, utterly insane and then also the government of Guam, in my opinion, had some back end deals with these hotels, and I would not be surprised if our own military officials were either aware of it or involved in it because they were making so much money keeping their hotels afloat by forcing military members to quarantine these government quarantine facilities whenever they got on island or left island if they had to quarantine beforehand Um, so the government was doing this in the military to all the service members for i mean to this pretty much to this day Um, but going back so after i did that initial five weeks uh i was done i was super wrathful at the system, at the situation that was going on. And, uh, I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So I went in and I asked my, um, highest level enlisted my CMC at the time to ad set me, to just give me an administration set. I was like, listen, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I think what's going on here is absolutely corrupt. It's super fucked up. What you're doing to guys is incredibly disgusting. Um, and I was like, and this is causing me to have, you know, massive depression, trying to not cope with the isolation itself but to cope with the fact that these people i signed up to serve for and go and fight and die in a war for just did not give a fuck about our human rights whatsoever it was follow the orders follow the narrative if you step out of line you're gonna get slapped down um so i went in and asked for that they told me to take some time and sit on it uh So I did was still super discontent with the situation still would be willing to give up my benefits for an early release from this, because I understood that I was breaking my contract with the military and I take that seriously. I take a contract seriously. So I was like, listen, I understand I'm breaching this by asking for this, but I'm also willing to give up all of my benefits and pay you back my bonus um, to get out of this situation. Like that's how seriously I take this. And Ended up not getting it and they basically told me I was gonna go back to the fleet and ship paint or I was gonna go back and uh, to my team and keep doing my job. Obviously I didn't wanna go back to the f- fleet and ship paint because that's even worse and the COVID restrictions and everything would have been even worse there. So I went back to my team, tried to deal with it. I did one more uh, partner force engagement. So we went off island, 17 days, locked in a room, And when I say locked in a room, it's legit locked in a room. You're locked in a box, no key to the door. You're getting fed three bullshit meals a day, no outside time, no sunlight. Like it's hard isolation, um, hard quarantine. And usually they had guards outside as well. So I'm sitting there in my perspective, you know, you're basically being locked up over a flu, you know, and did the partner force engagement came back. I, uh, hadn't gotten vaccinated at the time, but they were supposed to be going away with the ROM, with the quarantine policies. Um, but right before we got back, they changed it and showed up on island and they put us in a government quarantine facility. And that was basically the straw that broke the camel's back. I texted my chain of command, basically the second I had stepped foot in the room and I was like, hey, listen, I'm not doing this again. This is super fucked up. Um, whatever the consequences are, so be it. Um, so I ended up getting my badge pulled, kicked out of my community for that after a another like month or two of deliberation and some conversations and things that went on. Um, and then basically just got told I was a piece of shit. And if I didn't want to do my job, then I didn't deserve to be there. Um, and so be it, I absolutely respect their opinion. I think that if I was a military leader in their shoes as well, you can't have someone stepping out of line and question your authority. So I don't blame them for the actions they took. Um, so got out and then, uh, request an early transition in lieu of the force conversion luckily that got granted and then uh i was released from the navy a couple months ago um and i think that's about it i just kind of wanted to clarify a little bit more introduce myself uh and i touched on in the last episode i kind of wanted to uh, touch on a little bit more about the actual authoritarian policies that were going on on Guam, which is a u.s territory it's not state but i mean it's u.s land like i owned a condo there where, when I was getting back to Ireland, the government was literally telling me I could not go to my own home or if I was in my home that I was being placed under house arrest for a flu, you know, yeah. and Man, it was that's insane. really crazy.
1: Yeah. Um, well, and especially when you guys are essentially out of every demographic, you know, at least of people over 18 in the world, military guys are the least susceptible to this germ. Um, yes sir you know for older people it ain't just a flu but for a ship full of sailors yeah that's pretty much what it is (laughs) you know what i mean and uh you know especially now i mean i don't know with the you know omicron variants or whatever as it seems to be getting less and less harmful hopefully it'll continue to evolve to be nothing but a flu eventually but um you know
0: absolutely and i don't want to downgrade the seriousness of of covid covid definitely has killed a lot of people and i i when I say the flu, I'm being oh, sarcastic, but it's, yeah. it, I mean, it's, it has legitimate health risks, obviously, you know, yeah, sure. but, but we're talking about a ship full of 20 year olds it. too. It's yep, yeah, it's, exactly. You know, yeah. That's
1: fair. And look, um, the thing is about government, right. Is, you know, especially when you're talking about, you know, sailors or, or Marines or soldiers, where you guys are completely under their control. As you say, these are orders, Uh, right. And so then there's, there's, you know, very little accountability that flows upward from the enlisted guys to their officers or whatever, a bad policy. You know, if you ever read catch 22, a bad policy in the military, I mean, that's the same thing. (laughs) You know, it just, um, that's just, you know, always how it works. But of course in the civilian world too, the, you know, overreaction was one thing, but then the refusal to adjust was another. Yes. You know, I, um, I interviewed, I think this would have been in April, probably maybe it was March still, but it was probably April of 2020. I interviewed this reporter named William Arkin and he's like a really interesting and experienced national security beat reporter. He'll tell you about like military agencies you've never heard of before. And you know, does like deep reporting on continuity of government stuff he writes for Newsweek, right? Like he's a serious ass journalist. He used to write for the Washington Post. So it's when we're talking about continuity of government and, you know, secret plans for transfers of power in the event of a nuclear war or whatever, we're not talking about, you know, some website, right? We're talking about, this is really the straight dope. Like this guy does a real good job on this kind of stuff. Um, So anyway, he comes on my show. He, he did a report about this, about how, you know, they're preparing for total martial law, essentially, or at least a a military takeover of the government in the event that when the virus gets here, it completely wipes out the West wing. And if Trump, if Trump and Pence and their staff are all on ventilators and the whole like white house civilian thing, he says, forget about what it says in the 22nd amendment and the law where it goes from the president to the vice president, to the house speaker to the secretary pro tem of the Senate, to or the president pro tem of the Senate, I mean, and then to the secretary of state and then the secretary of defense and all that chain of command, he goes, forget about that. In the event of a real emergency, none of that applies. In the event of a real emergency, it'll be a general in Colorado Springs, an air force general. And he knew the guy's name, I forget, but whoever's the head of central command, he will take over the country and will issue the orders. And then they'll bring kind of you know, old politicians that everybody knows and trusts supposedly out of retirement to fill special positions and all this, all this just crazy unconstitutional behind the scenes, continuity of power law and, and, and orders in the country way. But then I interviewed him two weeks later. I think it was maybe three weeks later. And it was like, all right, well, well Good news is there's like 24 cases of COVID in Montgomery County or whatever it is. And and when, and we can tell now from the way this thing spreads that when it gets to the White House, it's not going to decimate the West Wing. They'll get it one or two or three at a time and then they'll be fine. And hell, even Chris Christie didn't die of it. So obviously Trump and Pence are not gonna die of it. They're not gonna be wasted on ventilators for months out of pocket and unable to fulfill their duties and whatever. So we just, in other words, when I interviewed him for that first interview, It was like, look, the virus is just starting to spread, and some of the footage out of Italy looks really bad, and we don't know what's gonna happen, but just in case of the worst case scenario, they're preparing for a military takeover of the country. And then three weeks later, okay, well, that's not gonna be a problem. That's clearly not how bad it is. You know, on a scale of one to a Hollywood movie, this is like a three or a four. It's bad, but it's not martial law worthy, right? We knew that right away. Like, that's how I measure it. it was like, cause I interviewed Ark in a follow-up interview two or three weeks later. By then we knew this is not sweeping DC like a wildfire and incapacitating our national security staff or whatever. It's just not going to do that. But then as you're saying, they kept the thing locked down for yep. months anyway, depending on where you were. Yeah. Um, weeks, months, you know, they, years. Yeah. Kept these restrictions like crazy. Instead of having that same realization that, okay, well, we're not going to have to do continuity of government. Okay. We're not going to have half the population of the city of Dallas lay down and die of this thing. You know what I mean? It's whatever it is, it doesn't look like that. Um, and, and then instead of adjusting the policies for that, they just kind of kept them. because then just like you identified with the hotels, perverse incentives all line up first and foremost, First and foremost, you can't be soft on communism, and you can't be soft on terrorism, and you can't be soft on Putin, and you can't be soft on public health when there's a giant virus afoot. And so, you know, like, um, you ever see, you're too young for this probably. but there's this old British TV show called Yes Minister, and the punchline was always, something must be done. This is something. We must do it right? Even though yep. that something might not be the right thing at all, but what are we going to do? Nothing as, as Hillary Clinton's, uh, apologist, Samantha, uh, not Samantha Power. Um, Anne Marie Slaughter said that when the choices are very tough, either way, then Hillary, well, she would just prefer to be caught trying. Yep. In other words, when you have that police power, you can't just sit there and do nothing. So you gotta start bossing people around. You gotta take control. Even if there's nothing to take control of, even if we're talking about a respiratory virus, that's gonna come and go in your community and then it's gonna come and go again and then it's gonna come and go again. And that's just how it is. You can protect yourself. If you wanna lock yourself in your bathroom and never come out, then fine. But you can't lock up a whole society. It's just, it won't work anyway. It doesn't work anyway, you know?
0: Yep. And what I saw was the complete opposite of them helping or trying to even continue the power, it was an absolute increase as we continue to learn that this virus is not deadly at all. So when it initially kicked off in Guam, a carrier pulled in, and the CEO of the carrier started evacuating people off of the carrier, because they thought COVID was as serious as they initially did. He was like, I do not want my sellers to die and he got utterly roasted for that and he got fired his from his position he got fired for speaking out um and then instead of them going okay cool this guy saved his sailors from this deadly disease that we're saying is so deadly we need to lock down the economy lock down the borders lock people in their homes Um, we're going to fire him but then as it progressed and we learned okay this is not that deadly to these demographics, certainly not the military. Instead of saying we're going to loosen all these restrictions, they're like, no, we are cracking down on everything. Vaccines, masks, quarantines, isolations. And that was such an eye opening moment, watching the demonization of these people who spoke out initially, but then watching the praise and glorification of the people who started following the narrative later on down the road. Um, and not a lot of people in the military, I think, really paid enough attention to that aspect and if they did they were too busy worried about their retirement or their paycheck their stability like you were saying they have access to everything that makes our lives stable our economy they can ship us out whenever they want so your literal home um they can lock you in the brig take your money put you on bread and water you know like it's serious the level of control they have over your life so Mm -hmm. even the people who didn't want to speak out you know there's a lot of people who are aware of it but that's not the answer um and that's what kind of led me to get into podcasting as well was just trying to speak out and give a voice to this stuff man because it's it's insane what's going on and mm-hmm. remaining silent might make you feel like you're not implicit in it but silence in that manner makes you just as implicit because you're allowing it to happen and these governments wouldn't be able to do the things they're doing if they didn't have a people willing to enact their orders for them so the more people who wake up and stand up to this on an individual level the more likely all of this corruption and everything can be rooted out and actually stopped you know on some level i think that there's always going to be a level of corruption it's politics you know um but that's what initially led me to this point uh
1: yep well listen i mean i think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that We don't really need a standing army at all. And this whole thing is a con. The Soviet Union's been dead for 30 years. And I say this as Russia's ruthlessly and mercilessly attacking and conquering at least half of Ukraine and maybe the whole thing. And still, it's the furthest thing from our sphere of influence. This would be like if the Chinese rolled into outer Mongolia. I would be sad for the Mongolians, like that sucks for them. But what does that have to do with America's national interests? Nothing. In the history of the world, there's a history of lines on maps changing. And, you know, the Americans break the rules whenever they want, which is true. And that's why Biden, I mean, pardon me, why uh, Putin invoked weapons of mass destructions and his responsibility to protect the people of uh, the eastern Ukraine, right? He's essentially mimicking W. Bush and Barack Obama from their justifications for invading Iraq and Libya, Yeah, I saw his statement about special military
0: operations.
1: Right. But so look, I mean, the reality is, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this lady, Jean Kirkpatrick. She was Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the UN, and she was a neoconservative by the textbook definition. She was a Trotskyite leftist, part of the Social Democrats USA, which was the Schachtman set of the ex-Trotskyoid neocons who rule America in, in so many ways. Anyway, so she was a real hawk during Reagan. He could count on her to be a real hawk in the UN. She was famous for writing an article saying, well, authoritarians are okay, as long as they're aligned with us against the totalitarians, the communists, right? In other words, right-wing fascism, totally tolerable, as long as their job is crushing left-wing commies. So, but then the Soviet Union ceased to exist. 30 years ago, just this last Christmas, Okay. Eight weeks ago, um, the, uh, it was the 30th anniversary uh, Christmas day two, uh 1991. The red flag came down, the red, white, and blue flag went up, even Ukraine and Belarus and the Baltic states were, had been set free. The, the very last of the Soviet union was dissolved and completely abolished. So then there was a movement before Iraq war one broke out when the, when the cold war, really the cold war ended a couple of years before the final end of the USSR, they started setting your Eastern Europe free and Gorbachev and Reagan were getting along great. And so really pretty much the cold war was over already. Um, And so there was this period of time right before the uh, war in Iraq in 1991, where people were talking about the peace dividend And what's the world going to look like now? What are we going to do now? Hell, even after the Iraq War, the first Iraq War, that was still kind of a little one against a little weak country. It was a police action type of a thing, as they would call it, rather than like a war between peers or anything like that. It was not another power threatening us. It was Iraq threatening Kuwait and presumably not really, but said to be threatening Saudi, right? Um, So anyway, I'm trying to get to the point, which is that Gene Kirkpatrick wrote this... Uh, she wrote this piece for the national interest and it's called a normal country in a normal time. And she's not quite as explicit as me saying, we just don't have any enemies, but pretty much she's saying, we just don't have any enemies. And she says, it's time for us to shed the burdens of this dubious superpower status, right? In other words, it's not all we're number one and everything is great because of that it's by being a superpower we end up at least claiming responsibility for the behavior of every nation state in the world. And we end up making everybody's problems our problems. And in you know the name of international law, we end up escalating uh, crises where we don't really have a dog in the fight at all. And she says, instead, we need to start sharing our responsibilities with the other powers of the earth. And we need to recognize that, look, we're friends with the Brits, we're friends with the Germans, We're friends with the Russians. Now we've been friends with the Chinese since the early seventies, when Nixon went over there and, you know, split them away from the Soviet union and made friends with them. And then, but that's it, right? There are no other powers in the Americas. Brazil won't have a blue water Navy that they use to threaten their neighbors for the next 500 years. It's just not in the cards, right? There are no powers in Africa. You look at Europe. They're all our friends. You know, you're too young for this too, but I can tell you, I remember that, you know, as a teenager at the time that when the Soviet Union fell apart, immediately they started saying, oh no, it's gonna be the Japanese and the Germans are gonna rise back up again and they're gonna be our enemies again, like in the World War, cause you know, the Germans are. Well, here we are 30 years later and there hadn't been a, a bit of that. The, and it's not because we forced them to quit either, right? They just have had no intention. The Germans and the Japanese of being, you know, aggressive Imperial powers. Again, it wouldn't suit their interests whatsoever to try to do that. And then so that, but that's it. Like spin the globe around India is a big country. They're not wealthy and they have their problems with Pakistan, but they are not an aggressive global threat in any way. Again, they have a defensive military force, but nothing that they use to just you know, act as a regional hedgeman, much less a global one. And then you have China, which we have our differences with, but they're our number two trading partner. And again, Nixon went and shook hands, even with Mao Zedong, the devil himself, quantifiably the worst human being who ever lived, the man who killed more other humans than any other human, Mao Zedong, with the bloodiest hands of all men ever, And Nixon went and shook that hand and said, let's not do this in the cold war, be friends now. And then Mao died shortly thereafter. And not that everything's been perfect, but essentially the right wing of the communist party took over China after that, and has allowed the greatest increase in the standard of living for the most people in the history of the world. If you look at just the last 20 and 30 years of the adoption of market capitalism in China and to the great benefit of the people of the United States of America and the rest of the world, by the way. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't still have a one party dictatorship. It is still the communist party, not that it's exactly Marxist economics, but it's still very much a dictatorship and very much a political economy. And they throw a lot of weight around in the way that they deal with their neighbors and all those things, all those criticisms are true, but they're not an enemy of the United States of America and they're not coming across the Bering Strait or the Pacific Ocean to come for us, again, for another 500 years, you can just forget about it. The whole history of the world would have turned 10 times before they actually are coming to North America. Just forget it. It's just not happening. Um, and, And even if they took Taiwan, worst case scenario, they invade Taiwan tomorrow while America's distracted in Eastern Europe. Even still, Taiwan is part of China, and it always has been and since the 1600s. And America's policy is that there's just one China and they will be reunified someday. We prefer peacefully by negotiation and we do not wanna see an invasion there, but we don't have a treaty alliance with Taiwan. It's not truly a nation state and we have no real obligation to defend them. And it would be suicide to try to defend them. We'd lose a bunch of your sailor buddy friends to the bottom of the Pacific and then we'd still lose Taiwan anyway. Beijing would run off with Taipei anyway. And we wouldn't get anything out of it other than major casualties and the risk of a thermonuclear war, which would devastate both of our civilizations permanently. So, um, you know, but then that's it, right? Spin the globe. Who do you got left? You got Australia. Again, you have our friends, the Japanese. You remember a few years ago, they remade Red Dawn. And they, first they tried to make China the boogeyman, but the Chinese objected. They wanted to sell the movie in China, so they didn't do that. So then they spun the globe they were like, hell, who are we going to make the commies in this movie? And they had to resort to North Korea. And so for the first five minutes of the movie, it's a montage of pretend news clips explaining how North Korea became the most powerful world empire and took over America because what what else do you got? The lost colony of Atlantis out there in the middle of the ocean somewhere, or maybe Mars attacks from the movie Right? There's just no other threats. There's no one to fight. The Mexicans? Who are we going to go to war with? Pancho Villa? There's nothing to fight. We could be, and Gene Kirkpatrick was right. We have to go to Iraq at all. We say, screw the Middle East. Who cares? It's the Chinese that buy all that oil from them, not us anyway. Who even cares about that? Let the Chinese secure their own damn oil resources. We could have, never even mind after World War II or any of that, but just from the end of the Cold War on, we could have just essentially completely abolished our standing army. As Ron Paul said, we could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. Yes. What we can't do is rule the world with a couple of good submarines. What we can't do is tell the whole world, you don't arm up because we will dominate you and provide you protection and security under our dominant order over the whole planet. And I know a lot of people think of that as Pax Americana, that we keep the peace wherever we spread our empire. And yet, that ain't really true, is it? Look at all the dead bodies everywhere. Look at the million or maybe even two million people killed in the area from Pakistan and Nigeria by America and their friends and the consequences of their wars over the last 20 years. Look at the conflict we have with our massive peacekeeping defensive alliance, uh, NATO, in Eastern Europe right now, that's just provoked this massive conflict and the loss first of Crimea and now all of Ukraine to Russia because the Americans just think that they can get away with doing whatever they want and trying to boss everybody else around. And it just doesn't have to be this way at all. It just really doesn't at all. And it it sucks. It's America's fault. Cause I'm from here too. And I really don't give a damn about the opinions or the interests of the Ayatollah comedy K- or of, um, Vladimir Putin or of chairman Xi Jinping or any of these foreign leaders. Whoever the hell is the prime minister of Australia, I don't care about them and what they care about, other than the fact that if, uh, to paraphrase Ron Paul in his fight with Rudy Giuliani, if we act like we can just go around the world doing whatever we want and no one can ever do anything about it, then we do that at our own peril. We're just putting ourselves directly in danger by refusing to recognize that there could be consequences, you know? Um, you do a bunch of PCP and go into a biker bar and start a big fight. You could get hit in the head hard, you know, there, you can't just do whatever you want and act like nothing bad is going to happen. Something bad will happen. That was a weird analogy. I don't know where I came over that, but anyway, (laughs) um, you know, Gareth Porter, one more Gareth Porter wrote this book about Vietnam. It's called the perils of dominance. And it's about how this is in the battle days of the Cold War against the Soviet Empire, which ruled, you know, a third, again, as much land mass as the Russian Federation has right now. They ruled all of Eastern Europe and all the Central Asian stands and all of that, and had an alliance with China. We're talking about the, you know, 50s and early 60s here. Um, and Gareth Porter says, the reason this book is called The Perils of Dominance, it's because he says, regardless of what the politicians and the military were telling the American people, they knew that the USA was a hundred times more powerful than Russia and China combined. They claimed to have a missile gap that the Soviets had more nuclear missiles, intercontinental missiles than us. Yeah, right. They had four. We had 400 and knew it and knew it and had you know, uh, economic capacity and military capacity that just outmatched Russia, Russia and China in every way, but they portrayed it to the American people that we are at least equals. And the Russians might just be out ahead of us in terms of their military power. That just was never true. And the point is because they knew that that wasn't true and they knew that they were so much more powerful than the Russians and the Chinese, that then that filled them with this hubris. And this idea that we can do whatever we want, for example, in Vietnam, even if Ho Chi Minh has Russian and Chinese support, still we're going to kick their ass too. What are they going to do about it? Right? And, but here was the problem. Ho Chi Minh was willing to fight to the very last man. He was going to never give in ever. And that was his strategic advantage. He, you can bring on the violence. Yeah, people are dying all around them, but they've been dying all around them. It was the French before us. And the idea was the white men are not gonna call the shots on this strip of land no more. I don't care where you're from, you're leaving. You can call it Marxism, you can call it whatever you want. That was the communist position in Vietnam and they were sticking to it and eventually it worked and they won after America sacrificed, first of all, three to 5 million Vietnamese, Laotian and Cambodian lives But also about sixty thousand of their own, and plus trillions of dollars in fifties and sixties and seventies money. You know, with uh, the dollar was depreciating the whole time because of the war. That was why Nixon had to take us off the gold standard entirely. Finally, was because of the cost of the war, they had to inflate that money to pay for that horrible war, which they ended up losing anyway. And so, you know, this these are the perils of dominance when you know you're so much stronger than everybody in your neighborhood, yeah, sometimes you start acting like a jerk. And sometimes you will find someone who's willing to fight back against you. Even if that person knows that they'll probably lose the fight in the end, and they'll still fight you anyway because they'd rather fight than do what you say. And that's it. And the American people, you know, I brought up the Ron Paul Giuliani moment where he said, you know, if we do this, we do it at our own peril. I mean, this is the hugest thing in the world. And What happened in that moment was that Ron Paul was challenged by the moderator. Hey man, you want to end all the wars and be a non interventionist, but what about the terrorist threat? And Ron says, well, it was interventionism that caused the terrorist threat. If we hadn't been bombing Saudi uh, bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia, then bin Laden would have never attacked us in the first place. And then Giuliani says, how dare you? I demand that you take that back. And that's the craziest 9-11 conspiracy theory I've ever heard, that they were motivated by us bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi, which is, yeah, right. But anyway, just goes to show Giuliani do not know the first thing about al-Qaeda, not, not a thing, other than what he heard, never picked up one book. You know, never, never probably even read articles other than just scanning the headlines of the New York post or something This idiot. Anyway. So Ron Paul doesn't back down. Ron Paul says the CIA coined the term "blowback." It means consequences of CIA policies, pal. This is how it happens, et cetera, et cetera. And if we ignore that, we ignore that at our own peril. And the thing is, you know, this is while W. Bush is still in the chair. This is in the spring of 07, the start of the Republican campaign season in the primary debate here. And um Ron Paul's essentially force-feeding a Republican audience exactly what they do not want to hear, right? The bitterest pill that you know sorry to say but it really is true that H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton's policies provoked these terrorists that H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter had previously supported and back in fact Bill Clinton backed them too. Um that these these people had supported, they turned against us because of what we were doing over there. And the thing is about it, that had never been raised on TV. They just refused to talk about it. They hate us for our freedom. History began on September 11, 2001, period, that's it. But when Ron Paul said, well, you know, not really, people said, hey, I remember the 1990s. And I do remember that Bill Clinton bombed Iraq all the time. From bases in Saudi. That makes sense. And bin Laden was pissed off about that, huh? That makes sense. And then they went, Hey, how come nobody said that to me anytime in the last seven years? And the answer was because they're liars and murderers. And this is the, oh, the first guy honest enough in DC to say it. And how is he even there? How is he even on that stage? He's got this weird loophole. He's a member of the U S house in the Republican party. And it's just enough to squeak by to get on that stage. Everybody knows you got to be, other than Trump, the anomaly. But you got to be a vice president, a governor, a senator to be a president. You know what I mean? Here's this little old member of the House that nobody ever heard of before. But that's his loophole enough to get in there and to say these things. And then, again, he fed the American people the bitterest pill of, you know, some some very tough truth. It was very hard for people to hear. And they loved him for it. They loved it for it because it was the truth. And they knew it was the truth. And they said, oh, my God, this old man respects me enough to tell me what's true. I mean, what's really true, even though he knows it looks really bad. And even with the bully Giuliani saying, how dare you? He doubles down and says the truth again, only even better and more. Wow. And people were just blown away by that. And because they knew that what he was saying was right. We can't just go around and do whatever we want and pretend like no one will ever react cuz we get ourselves in a very bad situations when we behave that way and i think that's we're true. experiencing America's that right policy, now. especially in eastern europe right now you can see it yep that's what i was going to say the blowback We're
0: absolutely experiencing it in the Ukraine right now. I had no idea the level of involvement the U.S. had over there with coups, backing rebels, the CIA supporting Nazis, ISIS that's encamped in the Ukraine that have been fighting these other separatists in the Donbass. While I have you here, if you just want to give a quick background, I know as quick as you can make it, of our involvement prior to what's going on right now, um, just to give people yeah. a little more of a context because Russia has legitimate grievances with the US right now. and I'm not saying I support him invading this country, absolutely not, but the issues he was bringing up with the US were absolutely legitimate and the US warmongered against him for weeks and weeks, months, you know, leading up to this moment. So we're definitely implicit in what's going on right now. You could definitely argue if we had been non-interventionist, that this would not have increased the level that it has.
1: I think that's right. And I completely agree with you that it's not at all to support what he's done at all here to support the position that he's taken at all. He's launched an aggressive war that he absolutely did not have to do. And then even then he didn't just seize the Donbass. He's now waging war across the entire country as far west as Lviv. Presumably, you know, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, but you know, presumably he's going all the way to Romania and seizing Odessa and Kiev and the rest. I don't know for sure, but it's possible that he'll stop at the Dnieper River halfway, but I don't think so. I think at this point he's going to go ahead and go for it and take the whole country. So it was an absolute catastrophe and people are being killed and, and I'm totally against it in every way. And yet, uh, at the same time, as you say, it's just true that America's foreign policies have led to this. I mean, hell, just on the face of it, I mean, these are the people who supposedly are the masters of the universe. They control everything. They dictate everything. If if the George W. Bush government and the Barack Obama governments, and for that matter, you know, Donald Trump and and Mike Pompeo um, and, and Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken. If these guys are all so smart, then how did it come to this at all? They should have seen this coming and headed off at the past 12 steps on the chessboard ago. You know, Madeleine Albright said, why do we get to use violent force? Well, because we stand taller. We are the indispensable nation. We stand taller and we see further into the future and we see the danger here. Oh yeah, it don't seem so smart to me. It seems to me like this is the direct consequence of Madeleine Albright working, that's Bill Clinton's secretary of state, working to expand NATO into Russia's former sphere of influence under the Soviet empire. And the fact of the matter is they just did not have to do it. And here's the thing, you know, the pressure right now, uh, you know, among like wonky types, which I'm just the guy from antiwar.com. I don't care about this, but for people who are in the foreign policy community there on the East coast, there's so much pressure to just say, well, this is all Putin's fault. He's a madman and a psycho and a killer. And that's all you need to know. But here's the thing of it. So many of these foreign policy establishment experts, self-appointed, but who have been there for decades are still alive and are on the record warning that this is what could happen. Not everyone thought that expanding NATO was a brilliant idea. In fact, many people of the very highest credentials of American foreign policy, so that we absolutely should not be doing this under Bill Clinton or especially under W. Bush, who expanded it the most. But Barack Obama and Donald Trump both continued to expand NATO and, you know, including now what 14 uh, countries overall or new ones. I forgot the total count, but uh, they've absorbed almost all the Balkans, of course, the Baltics and uh, Hungary and Romania and Slovakia and the Czech Republic and Poland and, uh, you know, all of this stuff. And it isn't just that, I mean, to, I won't go through the whole litany of like the chronology of it all, but under Bill Clinton W Bush, Obama, Trump, and into O Biden. All of this is consistently horrible throughout. I'm no partisan here. And the bad policies are not partisan here. I mean, all these guys have essentially agreed on this horribleness all the time. And that includes, first of all, NATO expansion. And admitting that's a military alliance and a war guarantee. You mess with Poland, you mess with us. You mess with Latvia, you mess with us. That's what NATO membership means, right? Um, so first of all, they've expanded this NATO alliance into Eastern Europe. Then they tore up the ABM Treaty, the INF Treaty, and the Open Skies Treaty. As far as tearing up that uh, ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, they installed these anti-ballistic missile systems in Romania and Poland, which are seen as very provocative for two reasons. One, they could be part of a first strike capability that we're attempting to build, apparently, Meaning instead of mutually assured destruction, we think we could knock you out with one punch. And and in fact, or even if you can take, uh, you know, try to retaliate, we'll shoot down your second strike after we nuked almost everything you've got. Anything that survives, we have enough capability to shoot that down enough where we think we're brave enough to go ahead and start a war. We might only lose one or two cities and we're willing to take the risk. And so mutually assured destruction canceled and willingness to start a war initiated, right? And, so that was a huge part of it. Um, even though those things don't work, the Russians have to react as though they do work and they have reacted as though they do work. And they also have done all of these color-coded revolutions uh, where, you know, a dozen of them or something. Well, they'll do anything to overthrow a government that's friendly to Russia. And in fact, Hillary allegedly, mean, I should take a note of this. Um, the uh, uh, 2011 uh, parliament elections. um She, you know, allegedly uh, intervened there. But um they've done ever since the late 1990s. They've just done all of these color-coded revolutions, including two of them in Ukraine, twice in 10 years. They overthrew the same guy Yanukovych, who won the election in 04, and then he won again in 2010. They overthrew him in the beginning of 2014, and that's what's led to this current crisis. Um, and then. So let's see. Yeah, NATO expansion, tearing up the trees, installing the missile defense system, the color code of revolutions, and then you know the 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 uh, the war in Syria is a bit of a side issue, but it's part of it. But especially in Ukraine, when they overthrew the government for the second time in 2004, that was this exact government that we have right now. Everybody except Obama, they were all the same men from the Obama government. You have. Um, Joe Biden was the vice president and he was running the operation. He wasn't just sitting there, you know, twiddling his thumbs. He had the Ukraine brief, as they put it, um, in, in controlling Ukraine policy under Obama during this time in 2013 and 14. And, um, he and Anthony Blinken and, uh, obviously, uh, um, uh, Jake Sullivan, who had worked for Hillary Clinton and then who went on to work for Joe Biden after she left in, uh, Uh, at the end of 2012 um and then victoria newland robert kagan's wife was caught red-handed on the famous f the eu phone call plotting the overthrow of the government and picking who will be well not yeah pretty much and and certainly uh deciding who will be in charge of the new government there um and you know she got all the heat for using a bad word f the eu on a private phone call and that was considered undiplomatic but why was she mad at the EU? Isn't that the question? Why F the EU? She was mad because they're taking too long to do the coup, and she's saying we want to get this guy Robert Sari in from the UN. And we're going to get Vice Pres, the Vice President Joe Biden and his men. And we're going to glue this thing together and stick it together and make this coup work. And she says I'm going to. I talked to Jake Sullivan, and we're going to get Joe Biden, the Vice President, on the phone on a conference call with the participants to give them an attaboy and get the deets to stick. And this call was intercepted and leaked presumably by the Russians two weeks before the coup. And then they did the coup anyway. And so we just know it's just a hundred percent fact that Joe Biden was in on that, on that entire thing. At the very least he was read in, I guess we don't know if he gave that attaboy on that conference call, but I bet that he would, I bet that he did, but certainly he had been briefed up to date on everything they were doing up until that moment. Um, on what all was going on and again as they say from other sources you can find this he as they put it held the brief for ukraine you know that means he was in charge of that policy inside the white house at that time and so then that's what led to the russian seizure of the crimean peninsula because the new regime threatened to kick the russians out of their sevastopol naval base and vladimir putin just was like no i'll take the whole peninsula before i lose my base And, you know, the Crimean Peninsula had belonged to Russia ever since um, the 1780s until Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine in the 1950s. But then after the end of the Cold War, Russia let Ukraine keep it on the condition that they gave their naval base. And that status quo had held for 25 years until Obama and Biden overthrew the government for the second time in 10 years. And that new government threatened to kick the Russians out. Only then did they seize the Crimean Peninsula for themselves. And then the war broke out in the East. And that's the controversy at the heart of what's going on right now, where the far Eastern pro-Russian separatists in the Donbass province in the far East of Ukraine, they seized the government buildings and refused to recognize the authority of the new coup d'etat junta, that had overthrown their democratically elected preferred president, and they said, well, "If you guys can occupy government buildings and overthrow our guy, well, we can certainly occupy government buildings and refuse to recognize your authority." And then the new Kiev government attacked them. They called it a war on terrorism and launched a massive war against them. And you know, something like you know, almost fifteen thousand people were killed. And they didn't get a real peace deal to call a halt to the thing until two thousand fifteen. And then there's been you know and that was uh still seven years ago there's been low level as they call it fighting ever since there and this kind of unresolved problem of the eastern uh donbass region there so then putin if you listen to his rant he's clearly angry and and going off but the thing is what he was saying in there was essentially right that ukraine is a de facto member of nato if Maybe America's not sworn to protect them, but they sure do dump in all these arms. At one point he says, what am I going to do? I'm going to allow them to install medium-range missiles, which Donald Trump tore up the treaty, preventing us from installing medium-range missiles in Europe. He says, what am I going to do? I'm going to let you install medium-range missiles in Ukraine, right? Within, you know, a two-minute flight time to Moscow? No, I'm not going to do that. And just, and the rest of it, he even... um brought up Bill Clinton and the CIA backing the terrorists in Chechnya, which is where Vladimir Putin began his rise to power, or not began it, but it was major stepping stones. In 1997 and 1999, he was the guy that Yeltsin called in to crush the, the Chechen separatists that Bill Clinton and the Saudis were backing. And then that was how he became president. He was the victor of the Chechen war and got nominated to be the, the prime minister And then Yeltsin resigned and and appointed um, uh, Putin to replace him on New Year's Eve 1999, uh, New Year's Eve of the year 2000 there, and gave him a huge advantage for the upcoming election in three months by giving him the chair three months early. And he's been in charge ever since. And he brought that up. He was like, yeah, you think I don't remember you back in the terrace in Chechnya? I was like... Uh, like not to bring up Ron Paul in that context, exactly. But it's one of those things that TV news would never tell you that. This is the kind of thing that occasionally a politician will go ahead and blurt out the truth that we don't say that in polite company about what went on there. That really is true. That America backed the Mujahideen. At the same time they were supporting the Russian war against the Chechens. They were supporting the Chechens against the Russians. And it's just sickening. And honestly, man, Again, not to take Putin's side and justify what he's what he's done. I think it's unreasonable, but it's rational. Um, yes. But just put yourself in his position for a minute. What if it was true that uh, that the Russians had backed Al Qaeda all this time when they were bombing our soldiers, bombing our sailors. I mean, the Russians didn't have three thousand killed, but they did have um, terrorist attacks that essentially were equivalent to some of the smaller al-Qaeda attacks against the U.S., like our embassy attacks or the USS Cole or the First World Trade Center bombing, um, where they had like the Beslan massacre and all other kinds of attacks by Chechens against civilians. So just imagine the hard feelings there, like not some truth or conspiracy theory crap, but what if it was really, really true and we really, really knew it? That the russians had kind of been behind al-qaeda's efforts against us this whole time i'm not saying that i'm this is a hypothetical only i'm just saying just think about what a grudge we would carry about that
0: well, we would have already declared guess what war on they that.
1: remember bill clinton's support for the terrorists in chechnya just like yep. we would yeah i think that a good
0: um thought process for this is to reverse the the tables, say if Russia was in Mexico or Cuba right now, Canada, if they were doing the same things that we were doing on their border, America would have already went to war. It
1: That's wouldn't right. have even
0: been a question. Or if we found out they were, uh, backing terrorists, we would have already went to war with them. So yep. what you're saying, um, about all these CIA coups, all these deep state operations and stuff, it was so eye-opening when I started listening to independent journalists like yourself, um, guys over like the gray zone, Ron Paul, all these, great brilliant people who were giving realistic reporting was so eye opening because in the military especially in the special operations community like you're there to be a warrior and you're constantly constantly told that you need to be ready to go so for example in Guam it was china you brought up taiwan earlier that was every day every day you needed to be ready to go to war with china and just warmongering it to the point where these men and women who I adore, like I am not talking down on anyone in the military. I have brothers there that I love more than people who share my own blood with me, Um, but they're there to do a job and it becomes a psychological pattern that you fall into Mm -hmm. where you start looking at these things as, I don't wanna say a game, but not really reality, where if you take an objective look back and look at the history of America, especially these coups and stuff like that, and then listen to what they're telling you, where they're saying, we're gonna go over here and we're gonna fight for democracy, we're gonna fight for freedom and we're gonna maintain the sovereignty of Taiwan. They don't give a fuck about that. These politicians who are actually in charge, these deep state members at the Pentagon and the White House, they don't give a fuck about you. You're a sacrificial pawn on a board and they will use you as such to fulfill their geopolitical games and also to put money in I their pocket. That's right. I think that's right. Listen,
1: this is tough, you know, tough medicine for people, but there's a very famous quote. It's apparently a quite well-sourced quote where Henry Kissinger, the former secretary of state and national security advisor during the Vietnam era for Nixon and Ford said that, look, military men are dumb, stupid animals to be used for American foreign policy. That's it. And these are pawns on the chessboard. They're not rooks or knights. They're nothing. And that is the perspective of the people in charge. I'm not my perspective, that's theirs. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, Colonel David Hackworth. Um, He was the most decorated officer from Vietnam and he founded Soldiers for the Truth. And um, he died of bladder cancer from Agent Blue uh, from the Vietnam War in the Bush years. But he really tried to stop the Iraq war and he published whistleblowers against it and all this stuff. And essentially, just like what you're talking about here, his idea was almost sounds like commie class war theory, but it's not, but it's, it is a class war kind of a theory only it's fact, it's much more like libertarian class war where in his um, phraseology, I guess you could say the officers are the government, the enlisted guys are the people. And it's just like out here in the real world, it's the government versus the people. Yep. And as far as I ever heard him talk about it, it was, you know, the officers don't give a damn about their men at all. And if anybody's going to protect the enlisted men from the officers, from their own leadership, it was gonna be people like him who were retired and big name enough and tough enough to go to bat for the enlisted guys who are being put at unnecessary risk by their selfish and careless and brain dead commanders. And so that was his entire kind of task as this retired officer was he was gonna go to bat for the little guy in the military all day, every day. And he would deride what he called the perfumed princes, which meant these generals who never got their hands dirty in their life. Don't know the first thing about bravery or valor or taking a risk who are so willing to deploy soldiers and Marines and sailors and whoever, wherever they feel like at a moment's notice for no good reason. And you know, I also remember, I don't remember exactly what he said about it, but I do remember that in the run-up to Iraq War II, not only was he against it, but he knew all about it. And he could say, listen, Sunni this and Shia that and Iran and Saudi Arabia and the Turks and the Kurds and all of these interests at play here and why it all matters and how if you do this, here's what's gonna happen, X, Y, and Z. You know what I mean? And he did that because of course, first of all, he's just an American patriot. But second of all, he's a partisan of the enlisted men. And he was trying to protect them. And he was trying to say, George W. Bush is putting these men in unnecessary danger. He Should not be doing this. And the danger is worse than we're being told. These guys are gonna get bogged down in urban warfare. Getting sniped from the second story is gonna be the story of their lives uh, for the next years. And we should not be doing this. And he was absolutely right about every bit of that. So, you know, I applaud you and your take. And I, you know, I think there are a lot of guys who they get out of the military, man, they just want to get on with their lives. And I respect that. You know, you got to deal with that. However, you've been, especially if you've been to war and back. Um, But there are a lot of guys who've been in the military and come back and now they just want to stop. All of this interventionism and militarism and every bit of it. You know, there's this great group called Bring Our Troops Home.us and Defend yes. the Guard.us, yep. who are on this major mission to get the states to pass laws banning the government from using National Guard troops in overseas missions unless they have an official declaration of war by the Congress, like it says in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 of the Constitution yep. of the United States. Not like we've
0: war. been dying and fighting for for the last however many years, absolutely yep. no declaration of war, executive powers that we've been over there for. since Hungary
1: in 1945 and uh, 1942. Nope. That was the last one we, Romania and Hungary in 1942, who were members of the Axis with the Germans, um, was the last time they declared war. And, yep. um, and, and listen, they're warmongers. making real headway. I'll tell you, part of the reason they're making such headway is because they're combat veterans And they're not from Vietnam era. They're not like born on the 4th of July kind of hippies who have moved left. They're all Ron Paul guys. They're all libertarians and conservatives and constitutionalists. And they've been to the 21st century wars and they speak with just authority, absolute authority about how it never should have been this way. Any politician who says like, oh no, we got to defer to the people who know better than us and do this, nuh-uh, because here comes some Green Berets and here comes some Rangers and here comes some Marines and here comes some all kinds of guys all lined up to talk about how they've been there and back and they can tell you that's not true, that these people in charge know what they're doing and mean well and do a good job or any of these reasons why we should defer to them. No, we should not. And when it comes from these guys, I've seen it in person. When it comes from these guys, it's so meaningful, especially the officers, Um, but the enlisted guys too. They come in and just like for all those years, they told us we're not allowed to say anything about criticizing the workers. We'll hurt the soldiers' feelings. Only they're allowed to have opinions about this. Okay, fine. Well, we sent a few million people to war and back. What do they got to say about it? And none of them are happy with it. None of them can look at Iraq and Afghanistan and say, oh, I'm sure I'm glad that I sacrificed everything, including my best friends for that. When Ramadi's under the control of this faction and Fallujah's under the control of that faction now, nothing to brag about there, man. And same thing for Afghanistan and all of the rest of this stuff. And so then what happens? These guys who are the only people who are allowed to comment on this, they get up there and guess what they have to say? We shouldn't have done it. We shouldn't be doing it. We demand that you change the law so that DC can't do this to the people of our state again. The National Guard is for, you know, sandbags when it's flooding and emergency cots when there's a fire, you know, or whatever it is, um, uh, uh, helping out the firemen when the, when the woods catch on fire, um, not for invading other countries, you know?
0: Yes. And it's, it's really worrying right now because the same people who sent all of our men and women to fight and die for oil. And for geopolitical reasons in the middle east are all still in power and with what's going on in the ukraine right now i think you're really seeing them get primed to send another generation of young men and women to fight for american imperialism and die for american imperialism and it absolutely does not and should not happen we have no no reason to be over there no reason to go fight and die for these people especially with the current state of affairs in america where we have A straight up fascistic regime over us right now. That should be all you need to know. If you want to go fight and die for America, cool. Guess what? That's what's about to happen in America, like inside of our borders. That's where the war is right now. It's ideological, it's fourth and fifth generational. And hopefully, it doesn't evolve to the point where we have to use guns on each other. That would be a travesty, an absolute travesty. And to avoid that, it's going to require people waking up, speaking out, getting involved and fighting back against this corruption. And the, for lack of a better word, just evil intentions of the deep state, the uniparty, these people who are actually in charge. Everything okay? Hold on, it kicked me out. I'm sorry. I got you. Yeah, it kicked me out. I apologize. It didn't hear. It didn't like what I was having to say.
1: Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> I can hear you fine. Everything, everything looked fine on this end, so.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, it had kicked me out. But yeah, so that's, uh, that's where we're at. Pay attention to what's going on right now. Uh, with what's going on in the Ukraine stuff too, don't fall to the lies where they're telling you inflation is because of Putin or gas prices are rising because of Putin. I think that not to get too nefarious, too conspiratorial, but it's entirely possible that they got on the phone with Russia and they said, you guys can go ahead and invade Ukraine and we're going to oh, use nah. this crisis to quell the sheep in America. Yeah.
1: Nah, it's <laughs> you know, it that's that's not quite how it works, but it is true, of course, that having a crisis is convenient. It's it's good for Putin's public relations inside Russia too, just the same as it is here. No, for uh, sure. It's always good to point at a foreign enemy, but uh, that level of collusion is nah, certainly not in this case. But anyway, though, um, I think you're right. That look, as I always say, it doesn't have to be this way. And and as Ron Paul might have said, you don't have to believe in this stuff. And that was the at the bottom line of what Ron Paul was telling people. It was like, hey, you feel all this kind of pressure to believe in the, the narrative of the war on terrorism? Nah, that's a bunch of crap. You don't have to believe that. And people were like, oh, thank God. Because before that, it was just a bunch of left-wingers and Michael Moore, the big, fat, millionaire, communist, hypocrite, Hollywood piece of crap telling them that the war is bad. So then they're like, well, man, I'd rather be pro-war than be Michael Moore. You know what I mean? Then Ron Paul comes and is like, nah, 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 nah. You could be like me. I'm a Texas Republican and I'm anti-war. I'm anti-war as hell. I make Michael Moore look like a Hillary Clinton supporter, which he is. How do you like that? And uh, so people rally to that. People say, great. If Ron Paul says I can be anti-war, then I can. You know, Um, that's what it's all about. doesn't have to be this way at all. Just admit it to yourself. You know, if you were a sucker before, then you got clarity now, don't you? So um, so that's it. And look at the polls. You know, I think it was 32% of Democrats want to do something about Ukraine and 20 something percent of, I think, 23 or 25% of Republicans. And Republicans are always on that tough guy stuff. Here they are, not even a quarter of them want to intervene mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe right now because they're over it. They've been had. And the same government that's telling them that they're a piece of crap deplorable all this time now wants their support to go and get us in, you know, to escalate danger with the Russians. Uh, uh-uh. and they're just, yes. you know, folding their arms like this and saying, no way. So thank God for that. At least, you know, these people have spent the last of their credibility. And, and again, it just doesn't have to be this way at all. We could just knock it off right now. Can't be a republic and an empire. So abandon the empire, be free.
0: That's it. Well, I kept you over time. Um, I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate you
1: taking your time to explain this out and, uh, Scott Horton, ladies and gentlemen.